Rian Doris, thank you so much for being a part of Conversations with Conscious Enterprises. It's such a pleasure to finally connect with you since um, I reached out, I think it was almost a year ago that I was in LA when you were out there um, for my event and we weren't able to connect then. So thank you for being here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And that's, you're right that it is a year, but it's pretty tough to believe that. It's crazy. I know. So many things have happened, but it's also went so fast. So it's kind yeah. of crazy. Um, you are the co-founder and chief operating officer of the Flow Research Collective. And I'm super excited to talk to you about your TED Talk, which I really, really loved. Um, and before we get into both of those things and have you kind of dissect what flow is and all these things, I kind of want to get, have the audience get to know you a little bit first. Um, can you tell us where you're from, how you grew up and, you know, a little bit about your career background? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, I grew up where I am right now, actually in the West of Ireland, um, at about age th 13, I had a really bad, uh, traumatic head injury that caused about a seven year period of post head injury symptoms. So chronic fatigue, yeah. fibromyalgia, um, blurred vision, lots of different things. I spent the year after that head injury pretty much in bed, missed the year of school. And then about halfway through my teen years, as a result, primarily of the adversity of dealing with that accident, got really interested in all of these topics, personal development, peak performance, um, consciousness, philosophy, spirituality, and as a lot of people do, came across some of the sort of first peeking behind the curtain books. Uh, I think I think Tony Robbins was in that mix, which is a very common one. People pick up a Tony Robbins book, read it, and then they're forever afterwards fascinated by this stuff. But at about fifteen, I, I started getting into this whole world, um, and then by 16, 17 was determined to carve out something within this space for myself professionally. I resonated with the scientific approach much, much more than the sort of self-help or guru-like approach. And also um, more than take, you know, more than going into spirituality from a professional standpoint as well, of course. Um, so then went to college in Trinity College in Dublin, studied philosophy there. And then um, actually just wrapping up still a master's in applied neuroscience, began working with Stephen Kotler after working with lots of other sort of thought leaders in this space. I used to work with Keith Ferrazzi, who wrote the book Never Eat Alone, mm -hmm. who I think you might know, and uh, Dr. Dan Siegel, who's an amazing um, researcher, professor of psychiatry at UCLA. He was well known for bringing mindfulness to the West, along with John Kabat-Zinn and Jack Cornfield and that group. And then connected with Stephen Kotler about five years ago, um, who is very much so focused on flow and takes a very rigorous scientific approach to the study of peak performance, which I resonated with enormously. So that's a little bit about how I got to here. Yeah, well, fantastic. I, the, your, both of your approaches, um, taking the scientific neuroscience approach to dissecting flow states and everything is something that I'm just so fascinated by it and I can't say enough about the great work that you guys are doing and, you know, deconstructing this kind of, you know, kind of esoteric topic, you know, you're making it um, very uh, legitimate, you know. Um, so speaking of Stephen Kotler and getting, getting connected with him, I'm such a 
huge fan of him and his book, Stealing with Fire. Um, that was really a, fa a fantastic book. I think everyone should read it. Um, tell me a little bit about, let's talk a little bit about um, his background for those who don't understand who he is, for those who might not be familiar. And um, yeah, how exactly did you get connected with him? It sounds like you were in the same kind of circles. Yeah, exactly. So I was moving in similar circles and just to clarify for folks listening. So Stephen's a well-known author, speaker, and one of the world's leading experts on the neuroscience of peak performance, most well-known for his work on flow state. Um, <clears throat> he's written at this point, I think 12 or 13 national best-selling books and uh, co-authored a number of books on exponential technology as well with Peter Diamandis, who a lot of folks are a big fan of in the, in the tech space. But yeah, I was in moving in similar circles. I was also, I was a fan of Stevens at the time. I believe I first listened to him on Bulletproof Radio, Dave Asprey's podcast. And back then I just always made a point of anytime I found someone interesting or inspiring, I'd add them on every social media possible just to try <laughs> and get in their ecosystem as much as I could. And it paid off. He, um, I don't know, it must've been six months after that, he put up a, uh, Facebook post just asking for interns and so I just I shot him a message I was just closing up university studies at the time began interning with him doing pretty gruesome intern work that felt well below my pay grade but I loved Stephen's work and stuff so much that I, I kept hammering on that for a while and then expanded up my portfolio work and then we started the Flow Research Collective together about uh nearly two years ago now, so. Wow, that is so fantastic that you guys were able to partner together. So you're the operations, it sounds like, and what, what's his role? Well, Stephen's very much so um, thought leader, evangelist, yeah. personal brands, you know, figurehead, visionary, that kind of role. And then I'm definitely at the moment, especially very deep in the ops and uh, making sure the trains are running on time on that whole <laughs> end of things. It's a big job, yeah. And um, not to rewind, but uh, I, I found that so interesting um, your, that you mentioned the brain injury that you had when you were younger. Um, how do you think that that has helped you um, understand what you're working on now, all the research that you're doing now? Yeah, it took me, well, the first year that I had it, so I was, it happened when I was 13. So the first year of suffering with it was the year that also had the most severe symptoms. And obviously I was the youngest of any of the years suffering with it at that point. So that was 13 to 14. It was brutal at that point. I remember just being like, just, it was just awful. I could, couldn't exercise at all. If I exercised, I'd get blurred vision and oh, wow. end up in bed pretty much for weeks afterwards, actually quite similar to Lyme disease in some respects. Yeah. And then for then the symptoms got like a, a little bit less debilitating after that to the point that i could go back to school but still couldn't function properly and that that went on for another three ish years and at that point i got i started to suffer more mentally than physically with it it still wasn't getting better and the, yeah. the sort of beacon of hope of our oh, next month or this next doctor will do it or whatever began to fizzle as the condition didn't actually really get better with that long of a time period and so it became more of a psychological battle than just a physical one and one of the things that i resonated with or one of the things that made me resonate so much with flow was that i was very much so on the other end of the spectrum of dysfunctional both physically and then also 
becoming more so mentally due to the psychological burden of, of having that sort of debilitating set of physical symptoms for so long. And so hearing about this state of peak performance and heightened consciousness where you both feel incredible and are performing at an optimal level was immensely appealing because it was something that was like felt very much so on the other end of the spectrum to where I was sitting. And so that made it all the more appealing. I think if I was, if I, if I hadn't had the adversity, I would not have had the same sort of motivation be provoked to grasp towards or resonate with uh, a concept like flow. Um, so I would say that, yeah, spending a, a good bit of time on the other end of the sort of mental health and peak performance <laughs> end of the spectrum, uh, definitely, definitely built a very big well of motivation and desire and fascination. Yeah. That's fantastic. So Rian, what is flow? Sure. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a good question. So flow is, is technically defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. That definition gets thrown around a lot. I, I don't actually think it's a great definition in many respects, it's a little bit vague. Um, but so more, more specifically, and, and a definition that people can resonate with a little more, I think, in terms of what they've actually experienced, is that it refers to that state of being in the zone. It's often synonymous with runner's high when you're engaged in a task or an activity and you get so immersed in what it is that you're doing that the whole world fades away, time dilates, feels like it's either speeding up or slowing down your sense of self. So that sort of inner dialogue that's often nagging us in the back of our mind that tends to go offline and quieten down a little bit while it, whilst in a flow state and throughout time spent in that state, performance seems to go through the roof on a number of different things from creativity to learning to other more systemic effects that being in flow has on things like overall sense of well-being happiness meaning in life within martin seligman's research who is the founder of positive psychology he pegs flow state specifically as part of his perma model of well-being um, because of the positive impact that flow has on us from a happiness and meaning standpoint outside of the positive impact that it has on our performance when we're actually in the state. So that's Great. what it is. <laughs> and what is the easiest way um, that you can get into a flow state? Sure. So, I mean, <clears throat> what we do at the flow research collective is attempt at least, and we've been having some success with it or some told at least, uh, but we attempt to train people to be able to get themselves into that state with consistency. And so there's a bit of a paradigm shift there. In the first place, the idea of training a skill, learning how to code, learning how to write, learning how to dance, whatever it may be, is much more intuitive. The idea of tuning the channel on our actual state of consciousness and trying to shift state separate to developing a specific skill is a little bit less intuitive we just think about it less so it's somewhat of a paradigm shift in the first place to get to the full understanding of this idea that you can actually train up a state of consciousness with consistency so that's the first thing i would say is that it is a, it is a trainable state now as far as how to train flow and actually access flow there's a number of different things which we can go into on it the two big maps that we use when attempting to train flow are the flow triggers and so there's about 
22 different triggers that we've identified now, both in the research and the literature, and then within the work we've done with our own clients. And these are essentially preconditions that need to be in place for us to be able to drop into a flow state. And there are different categories of triggers. So there are psychological triggers, there's group triggers, there's creative triggers, there's environmental triggers, and there's, yeah, there's, there's a number of different triggers. And the more that those triggers show up at once, the more likely we are to, to drop into a flow state. And also the more likely that that flow state will be significant. So, you know, if, if you're doing something like skydiving and you've got novelty, which is a flow trigger activated, uh, complexity and unpredictability in the, in the environment, which are both environmental flow triggers, risk, which is a psychological flow trigger, you're very likely to get into a flow state. And so a lot of the activities that we tend to just intuitively associate with flow like skydiving or surfing or creative activities like playing music or singing or rapping. That's where people think often that they hit those moments of the zone. We hear about, you know, things like runners high or jazz musicians being in the pocket. The reason that it's easy to get into flow in those activities. And the reason that we often think of those activities in the context of flow is that those kinds of activities inherently have flow triggers baked into them. So again, surfing, skydiving are examples of that. Another important model or map to be aware of for attempting to train flow is called the flow cycle. And this was developed by a cardiologist at Harvard called Herb Benson. He writes about it in his book called The Breakout Principle, which is definitely worth reading. It's a pretty short lesson. It's really good on, on this topic. And his work essentially just says that flow is actually one part of a four-stage cycle that begins with a struggle phase, moves into a release phase, and then you have the actual flow state, and then there's a recovery phase in the back end. So knowing how to move through that cycle effectively and as quickly as possible so that you can maximize the time spent in the flow stage of that four-stage cycle. And then also knowing where you are within the cycle at any given time so that you can orient yourself and take the right actions to move through it is an important high-level part as well. The final thing I'll mention are what we call the flow blockers. Uh, some of these are less research validated. A number of these flow blockers are things that we've observed, training thousands of people at this point in flow. And these are your more common challenges or pitfalls that block people from getting into flow. So everything from exhaustion to burnout to excessive levels of stress, chronic stress specifically, to lack of motivation, lack of clarity. There's a number of other things that tend to block people from being able to get in the flow. And I, I tend to actually recommend people start with the flow blockers. Depends on the individual, but oftentimes pulling the thorns out is the best strategy before trying to add on new habits or hacks or tools. Couldn't agree with that more. What are your, your personal favorite triggers that you, you utilize um, on a daily basis? It's a good question. So there's a number of things. The first thing I would say, um, at least when it comes to knowledge work and trying to get into flow while building a business or writing a book or running a company or being a programmer or whatever it is. And the majority of our clients are in that sort of business leader category. So they do a lot of what could be classed as knowledge work. The, the term knowledge work sounds a little bit lame to me for some reason, but <laughs> 
it's, it, it's descriptive enough for this example. But when it comes to trying to get into flow while doing knowledge work, which is what I'm doing most of the time these days, the, the first crucial thing is distraction management. We say often that flow follows focus. And so the way that I like to think about it is that you've got sort of a sequence from attention to focus to flow. So attention is when you're pointing your awareness at something. There's the example of um, a lighthouse where awareness is almost like the fog lamp that's just kind of beaming out very broadly. Yeah. Attention is like the more specific light that is more pointed that comes through the fog lamp and points out at a specific boat, let's say that the lighthouse is looking out at. So attention is directing your attention specifically towards something that is within your conscious awareness. Okay. And then paying attention for a period of time without breaking your attention ends up becoming focus. And then if you manage to keep doing that for a while, you end up often landing yourself in a flow state. And so the biggest thing that breaks our attention and causes us to block ourselves from focus and then from flow as a result of that is distraction. And a lot of that distraction comes from digital management. So there's some very practical, simple things I can talk about with respect to that, if it's helpful, um, that I do. So one super simple little thing that I think is, it's an indirect flow trigger uh, because it's it's more so mitigating a blocker of flow than actually doing something to to drive flow, but just turning all the notifications off on your phone um, fully so that you never have a red dot or a number on any app and you never get a beep and you never get any influx of anything when you turn on your phone is an absolute game changer. Most people's attention is just all day being fragmented and tugged at every two, three, four minutes. Yeah, so that. That's, that's huge. That's just one little small example. Great. How much does diet or exercise or just general wellness um, influence being able to get into a flow state? Great question. So we talk about this as flow hygiene. So there are certain things that are also more systemic that you want to do that aren't there. Again, they're not like direct flow triggers where you you eat well and then you get into a flow state, but there are, there are indirect kind of hygiene things that you want to be on top of to make sure that you're priming your system and your physiology to be more receptive to a flow state when the more specific triggers arise. And we talk about these elements of flow hygiene as the positive psychology basics. So there are a number of things that the positive psychology literature has have shown have a really big impact on well-being, uh, nutrition, is one of those things. And that's important. There are not yet any specific dietary recommendations that we can make for flow, unfortunately. Um, we, don't, we don't have flow in a pill either, unfortunately, yet. Um, but just making sure that you're eating really nutrient-dense food, you're eating the right amount of it and the right macronutrient split is important. Hydration is key as well. Stephen likes to say that the easiest way to get smarter fast is to drink water. Um, and it's true. So hydration is key. Another element that people often underestimate and that's particularly important to be on top of right now with COVID and everything that's happening in terms of social distancing is social support. Um, and that in many respects from a psychological standpoint is as crucial as food 
is, whereas we often look at it as a much more optional thing, but we are social creatures and for our physiology to perform optimally, we need to have some level of social engagement and feeling of belonging. So that's super important. Exercise as well is another component of basic slow flow hygiene that's super important. And then the, the final piece that is, I would actually argue more important than all of those is sleep and being relentless about sleep and um, protecting it no matter what is absolutely key. It's just extremely difficult to get into a flow state if you've had two or three hours sleep and you can barely, you know, focus on staying awake, never mind focus on trying to do what you're actually trying to do. So all of those different elements of flow hygiene are, are really key. Yeah. Great. Yeah. They all kind of work uh, symbiotically, I would imagine. Hmm. Um, how can business leaders, because uh, a lot of my audience tends to be business leaders, entrepreneurial types, um, how can business leaders be utilizing flow states to increase performance or maximize their impact? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. So there's a number of different elements to it. Uh, the first thing that's worth touching on is group flow. Uh, the second thing I'll talk about is sort of strategy, let's call it. Um, but let's touch on group flow first off. So group flow is the idea that you can actually get into a flow state in a, while engaged with other people, not just on your own. We actually just put out a newsletter on Monday. The subject line was the most powerful type of flow and it was about group flow ah. and we are social creatures as i just mentioned and so our physiology in many respects is primed for flow within the context of a group and even within the context of a one-on-one -on -one engagement mihai csikszentmihalyi the quote-unquote godfather of flow science talked about that as relational flow which is where you you know get lost in a conversation with a close friend for an evening and three hours fly by but group flow is, I think, very important for performance, for well-being, for engagement, for trust, for all of the kinds of things that leaders want to optimize for to maximize the performance and well-being of their organization. And like individual or solo flow, there are a number of different triggers for group flow. I'll give one example because it relates to the kind of culture that you want to set up. Um, so one example of a group flow trigger and again, these were developed by a psychologist called Keith Sor at the University of North Carolina for folks who want to dive deeper into this group genius is the book. Um, but one of the group flow triggers is yes and. And Keith actually observed this in improv. He saw that improv groups would get, would get into flow with extreme consistency and that it was one of the places where group flow was taking place the most and with to the highest degree, the, the, the level of flow that people were experiencing in improv groups was, was very high. And so he, talk, he talks about yes and as a group flow trigger. And this is simply the idea that when communicating within your organization, with your employees, with other leaders, with other stakeholders, that you take an additive approach to conversation. So in a brainstorming session, in a management one-on-one, -on -one, in a team call, whatever it is, when someone raises a point, whether that's a, an objection, an idea, a suggestion, you want to try and in some way, shape or form, make sure that your response has the structure of yes and. So you are acknowledging and agreeing to what they're saying in some capacity, and then you're building upon it rather than 
directly shutting it down. And that does not mean that you have to agree with it. You can, yes, Anne, that's an amazing idea. Love that you brought that up. And I'm glad that you're taking initiative like that. Let's table that for now. We'll circle back to it next month, for example. Um, but making sure that communication is additive in general is, is important. I think in many respects that vulnerability is a trigger for group flow. It is not one of the triggers that Keith has identified specifically, but it sort of pulls on a number of other triggers that are sort of secondary to vulnerability. Um, for example, risk. Risk is seen as a group flow trigger as well. So taking risk within a, within a social context. And I think in many ways, vulnerability has risk within it as a core component of it. Um, so vulnerability is one way I think of activating risk in a way that activates flow. Um, another group flow trigger is familiarity. Um, and just ensuring people are you know, familiar and well acquainted with one another. Again, vulnerability, I think, is a precursor in many respects to familiarity. So it's not, it's not directly a group flow trigger, but I think it's, it's an important one. Um, yeah, shared group risk is an important one. Equal participation. So this is a key one, especially when designing teams. Ideally, the individuals in the team have some level of skills equality or skills balancing. If you put people in a team who are working together, obviously it's, it's fine if the manager, for example, has a different role or structure, but ideally the individuals in the team, like let's say it's a, a team, a programming team or an engineering team, ideally there is a reasonable level of standardization with respect to the skills that that team is engaging with. And not having that blocks flow. And you can think of team sport as an example of that, you know, if you're trying to play team sport with someone who's just way, way, way better than you or way, way worse than you, it's just not fun. You know, you're, you're either just slamming them or they're slamming you right. and no one's spending very much time in flow. Whereas when you, when you get that equal skill balancing, it's much more enjoyable from a, it's much more um, facilitative of a flow state in general. Um, yeah, shared goals is another important one. Close listening, making sure to actually truly pay attention to what people are saying and listen to understand rather than listen to respond is important. That's a big trap. I think that leaders get into that blocks group flow is, you know, their, their direct report is giving them feedback or talking about something. And they've decided what their response is or their assessment of the situation is 30 seconds into the two minute breakdown that they're being given by their direct report and they're not actually receiving the information. And then after that, assessing what's being said. So I think oftentimes the sign of a good leader is that they pause after having heard something. Um, it just demonstrates that they're, they were listening and now they're formulating a response rather than having been not listening and instead formulating a response as the person has been talking. So there's some of the ways of, of cultivating group flow within an organization. You also want to have good operations in general to cultivate group flow. If people spend immense amounts of time trying to find Google docs before being able to start work, you know, that just the results in stress, aggravation, wasted time. So having, top-down structures like good operations running on scrum for example or 
taking a lean or agile approach, those kinds of organizational policies and practices, I think are very conducive to flow, even if they're not specifically coming out of the flow literature. But in many ways, at least our argument would be that the, the popularity of things like Scrum is, has you know, come about due to the degree to which it results in flow within organizations and thus boosts performance. So that's a little bit on group flow. The next thing I would say as a leader is being strategic about how you are deploying your flow states individually. So you can get into a flow state doing things that are not good for you. Uh, you know, you can get into a flow state robbing a bank, committing a crime. Video gaming is a very common state. There's a chapter in Stephen's book, Rise of Superman, called The Dark Side of Flow, where he talks about people being addicted to flow. And you see that a lot, even in action and adventure sports, which on the surface are less negative as sports, but you see a lot of folks who can't hang up their boots and they skydive until they die, essentially. And there's, there's many, many cases of that. And funnily enough, not funnily enough, but crazily enough, many of the athletes Stephen profiled in Rise of Superman when he was talking about extreme sports athletes in the context of flow, some of them actually, since he's even written that book, passed away because wow. they're, yeah, they're just continually pursuing that state of flow because it's so addictive oh, um, yeah. and so appealing. So anyway, so you can get into flow doing things that are not necessarily good for you, you as an individual or that are not necessarily conducive to your long-term goals. So I think what's really important is having a good strategy for getting into flow or identifying the things within which you're going to try and get yourself into a flow state. So that relates to the whole productivity literature of like identifying your highest leverage tasks, finding the unlocking moves, making sure that you're, you know, only doing your highest value work. You want to make sure to do all of that stuff first so that you know what it is that you're trying to get into a flow state doing and then from there, you want to set up the conditions to be able to get into a flow state doing that kind of thing. Great. All great, uh, great tips. Um, can you recommend any hacks for professionals working from home during these, you know, pandemic times? Um, you know, because people may be feeling a little, uh, you know, just off center and, you know, having an irregular routine. What are, what are some of your hacks for, for flow states working from home? Sure. Yeah. So. First thing I'd say is all the same stuff definitely applies while working from home, but often even more so. The first thing that we really emphasized heavily to our community um, when COVID hit back in March and there was this huge amount of uncertainty and complexity was to double down on the things that work for you in normal conditions rather than to throw them away. Often a sort of knee-jerk reaction in a state of chaos or stress if someone's business, for example, is under serious threat and they're having to let go of people. Often the, the instinct is, you know, there's a fire. I just have to spend all my time putting out the fire and I don't have time to meditate. I've got to cut my sh sleep short. Yeah. I don't have time to exercise. I don't have time to downregulate my nervous system before going to bed. And the opposite is very much so the case, at least according to the research you want it, you want to amp all those things up in a state of, of stress. And rather than viewing those sorts of flow hygiene practices as nice to haves, ideally they become 
sort of you know meditation life or death type habits um so that's the first thing i would say is it's just making sure that you're dialing those things up rather than rather than dialing them down with respect to working from home specifically what's extremely important is is boundaries so we say in general that all flow triggers do one of two things they either drive dopamine and norepinephrine into the system, which are two neurochemicals involved in attention and focus, or they reduce cognitive load. So every, every flow trigger in one way, shape or form is either amping up dopamine or norepinephrine or dropping cognitive load. And cognitive load is the amount of information that you're holding in working memory at any given time. So if you think of a computer, for example, a computer has RAM, that's the amount of information that that computer can process at any given time. And when it's RAM gets full, especially in the past, when you had very low RAM on those huge, big old Windows computers, the computer would slow down. And it, in many respects, it's the same for your cognition. Your, your working memory, your cognitive load has a capacity. And the higher that capacity is, the more things you're holding in working memory, the less focus and attention and cognitive resources you have left over to give to the things that you're actually trying to do. So you want to try and keep cognitive load as low as possible. And again, as I mentioned, all flow triggers have an impact on driving cognitive load down, but you can also do other things to drive down cognitive load. And so when working from home, one of the things that negatively impacts cognitive load and adds things into working memory and adds distraction is a lack of boundaries. So someone trying, for example, to build a really important pitch deck in the kitchen with the door open and their teenager playing music and their younger child coloring or whatever it is in front of them. Ideally you try and create as much um, environmental boundary as possible to reduce cognitive load and really try and separate out and cordon off your workspace. And even if you don't have a big apartment or something like that, it's worth literally buying on Amazon a $30 like blind or something just to be able to create some kind of environmental boundary that'll have a positive impact on, on cognitive load. And then on the cognitive load note as well, boundaries are very important. I think from a, from a time perspective. So environmental boundaries are very much so as we just mentioned, you know, related to the actual literal workspace environment. But when working from home, the time boundaries that a lot of people have, just naturally baked into their day, taken for granted, like waking up and catching the 8.30 train or whatever it is to work and then working until six and then going to the gym at six and then coming home at seven for a nice dinner, having shut down their work day. All of that stuff's just gotten wiped away. So all of those baked in transition rituals and boundaries are just gone. And so putting those in place for yourself and viewing them as just as non-negotiable as when they were involving some kind of commute or some kind of other activity, I think is very important. So ideally you've got some kind of a morning routine that acts as a priming ritual and has intentionality behind it. And then ideally you've got some kind of a power down routine or ritual to cap the workday. And ideally those things happen at a pretty similar time day to day so that you're not working in your pajamas till 2am one night and then sleeping in till midday and then spiraling out like that. So making sure to bound things from a time perspective is very important. 
another thing that relates directly to that that I would mention is transition rituals. So ideally when we finish work, we want to change our state from the state that we're in when we're working, where we're usually um, somewhat, you know, amped up. There's a lot of things that are floating around within our, within our mind share. And oftentimes, even if we've been in flow, that feeling is very energizing and it's almost like your nervous system is kind of buzzing a little bit. So I do some kind of transition ritual that you have in the evening that doesn't just bracket the day from a time boundary perspective, but that actually shifts your, your state physiologically, how you actually feel in your body and in your psychology. And things that are very helpful for that are usually bottom up practices. So taking a walk to, you know, alleviate stress and release some endorphins through the exercise, taking a hot shower, taking a nice cold shower, stretching, foam rolling, but something to, to try and impact your nervous system a little bit and shift your state, I think is very important as well at the end of the day. And again, often they happen within the, the normal rituals of commuting and things like that. And so adding those in intentionally, I think is, is important. What about like breathing exercises or meditation? I've been using those to sort of transition through different tasks or different portions of my day. How, what, do you, what do you think about those? Yeah, I love, I love breath work. Um, yeah. Great new book on, on breath in general. It's actually, I think it's called Breath by James Nestor. Just came yeah. out. Uh, definitely worth checking out. But yeah, personally, I find just from my own, what I find most helpful for myself, I find breath work much more helpful actually than mindfulness. Yes, meditation and mindfulness are very simple activities but they're actually very advanced and people think that because they're simple they're easy and that you can get really good results very quickly because all you're doing is watching your breath but they're actually very sophisticated nuanced subtle practices whereas if you do Wim Hof breathing and you do 30 rounds of it your whole system is going to feel very different at the end of that no matter what well, if you, so long as you're breathing yeah. in and out, right, you know, yes. you're going to get the result. So, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of like a, like a slap to the head as opposed to like, compared to like a mindfulness practice. It's like, yeah, exactly. Like exactly. Getting those chemicals and gear in your head. Yeah. It's great. Um, I really enjoyed your Ted talk, Rian. I thought it was so, it really resonated with me so much. It's called why hustle doesn't lead, lead to success. Um, and before I, I'm going to link to it, obviously in the future and, um, before we share it with everyone, can you kind of sum up this idea for us a bit? Um, why doesn't hustle lead to success? Sure. Yeah. So I will just say for anyone who knows me and who's listening, I do work an extreme amount. Um, and <laughs> so it's in some respects, I feel a little bit, um, a little bit uh, contradictory with that message, but but the point is not necessarily related to the hours worked. It's to the overall principle and the view of productivity. So a lot of people think of productivity uh, from the perspective of how much they're putting in, how hard they're working, how much pain they're in, how hard things feel to them, how many hours they've put in, whatever it may be. Whereas the actual definition of productivity, if you look up the actual definition of it, and also just a more um, valuable definition from a practical standpoint, is that productivity is actually just defined as the amount of output that you can get for any unit of input. So you're actually trying to get as favorable a trade-off 
as possible of inputs to outputs. That means you're trying to work as few hours as possible for as maximum output and return as possible. Um, rather than viewing your productivity as high because you put in 60 grueling hours for a given week, you know, it's, it's, it's much more optimal if you could pull off that same output that you did from the 60 hours in 20 hours, you are under that definition of productivity three times more productive. Um, but with respect to the, the overall message of that, I think, yeah, the idea is essentially just that if you firstly understand that and then place constraints on yourself and your hours that you will end up improving your output for your input ratio. And a lot of people allow themselves to work endless hours and grind endlessly and think that they're crushing it and blazing ahead because of how hard it is. But when you refocus around that question of doing more with less, constantly looking to do more with less and constantly looking to get more output from every unit of input and related to that, constantly looking to put in less input for the amount of output that you need to get with whatever it is that you're doing. It could be writing a book. It could be building a business. It, I mean, it even, it even relates to exercise. You know, you know, a more productive workout is one where you get just as fit in 10 minutes as in 60 minutes. Um, That's one I'm learning right now too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So yeah, so, the, so that, that's the idea. And that's just the encouragement is for folks to really try and constrain down the amount of hours they would allow themselves to work yeah. so that the other variables that boost productivity kick into gear, which are things like being more strategic, delegating more effectively, um, removing work and eliminating things entirely. One of the things that we teach in Zero to Dangerous is that rather than optimizing, try and eliminate. You always want to try and eliminate things first. I give the example of um, when I was younger and still sort of focused on peak performance to at least to a certain degree, I used to have my binge drinking as a college student, super organized. And I had a perfect morning routine to try and mitigate the hangover and a, and a shake that I would take to try and <laughs> remove the hangover. So I was optimizing something that I should have just removed. And then I, I just stopped drinking and it was a much better, much better result. So yeah, the point there is just ideally you want to try and you want to try and eliminate things rather than optimize those things and only optimize after you, you know, you've assessed whether or not something can be eliminated. But yeah, but that's the idea behind that behind the Ted talk is to not view time or hours as the lever point when it comes to productivity, but rather to look at strategy delegation, uh, time spent in flow, flow in, in many respects is a source of leverage because it, it will, if you get into a flow state, boost your output for a given hour worked and uh, yeah, elimination of things as well that are unnecessary. So. So great. So great. And I also think it's just a detriment sometimes. Like there's like, there's a peak, like you said, there's once you reach that peak performance, that flow state, you can only hold on to it so long before it becomes like a detriment, I think, to your productivity. Um, so I think that's really interesting. Is that something that you have actually found in your research at the Flow Research Collective as well? Like, are you measuring these things? Ours specifically, we have not looked into. There is research that shows, I think it was with, I think it was with coders that shows that, um, that output tends to hit a, if you, if you work more than 35 hours a week, you, you can only go a certain amount of weeks with heightened productivity 
and then the actual output starts to trail back down to what it would be if you were at 35 hours a week. So there is research that suggests that over the long term, less hours result in the same output as more hours. There's also research actually that I cite in the TED talk from McKinsey that found that uh, placing limits on hours improved output. And that goes back to the whole idea of um, Parkinson's law and the idea of, of placing constraints. The, f the fact that the work will fit into the amount of time or space that you allot to it. And I think that that is a very strong, robust model from the anecdotal evidence that people give us about it and from some of the preliminary re research and things like that that have been done about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's very experiential for a lot of people that I know as well. Um, Rian, how do you define success personally for yourself and do you consider yourself successful today? It's <laughs> a good question. So there's a, a self-helpy quote that I've always loved. Um, I think it was by Earl Nightingale that okay. says that success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. And I love that quote because it, it emphasizes process and journey rather than outcome or destination. Mm -hmm. And um, if we're using that definition of success, I would define myself as successful. If we're using some other definition of outcome, I definitely do not feel successful yet. Um, what outcome are you waiting for? Um, I've got all sorts of different benchmarks and milestones and comparisons and things like that that I deal with that I'm trying to hit. Um, but I don't know, but I, I, I find that, yeah, for the most part, I am. I love the journey and the process. And that's one of the things that one of the things that flow really facilitates is that it is, you know, it's the exertion of effort in a way that actually feels good. So you, you get both progress and enjoyment in one hit with flow. And so, um, yeah, so I, so I'm pretty happy on, on route to the outcomes. That's the most important piece. Mm. Um, from your vantage point, how do you see the world evolving 10 years from now? And how do you see yourself contributing to it? God, I feel incredibly uncertain about the world at the moment. Yeah. Uh, and I feel torn between the two camps of, there seems to be, at least in some of the thinkers and um, authors and stuff like that, that I follow, there seems to be two camps. You've got the much more pessimistic group who are very, very concerned about existential risk and see right now as an inflection point where multiple variables are lining up in a way that they never have before. And then you see the other camp with actually people like Peter Diamandis and Stephen with the future's faster than you think, and Matt Ridley and uh, Steven Pinker, who are very, very heavily oriented towards a lot of really great data that does show that the world has gotten much better across many, many really important things um, and who are very confident that that positive trend will continue. So I feel a little bit torn between those and uncertain as to which it is. Uh, I definitely felt much more clear on the optimistic view before, before <laughs> the last six or seven months. And then, yeah, a lot of the other uh, thinkers, thoughts have I think been materialized unfortunately in, in more significant ways 
So I'm not sure. I mean, I, th- I do have immense faith in technology as a resource liber- liberating mechanism and as something that can free up humans to be more human. I always love the wizard and wand analogy with respect to technology and exponential technology, which is the idea that so long as we can be the wizard who is holding the wand of technology, we will be able to use it for good and have it accelerate us and amplify our innate human nature. So I do feel optimistic on that front, but I also feel very uncertain about all of it at the same time. (laughs) Um, It's reasonable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then in terms of contribution, um, uh, I mean, my my sort of personal mission is to use um, entrepreneurship and technology to help people recover from trauma and achieve peak performance. And so at the moment, the the shape that's taking is the Flow Research Collective, and I definitely think that'll continue. Um, And I think for me, a transition that will happen in the next 10 years is is moving more and more and more to the technology side of that uh, equation. Beautiful. And what is a valuable piece of advice you'd like to leave um, any professionals and entrepreneurs to think over with? I'm going to leave a piece of advice that's uh, not very profound at all, um, but that I need myself right now and that everyone benefits from way more than they think, which is to sleep really, really well tonight and this week and do everything you possibly can to protect your sleep above all else. That uh, it just makes such a difference, I think, and I think more, more of a difference than almost anything, um, especially with the times we're in right now. So I'm just gonna underscore the importance of sleep as my piece of advice. That's a good one. And a little um, little segue to that last question. Um, what is, what, do you know what it is that's going on in the brain when you have a good night's sleep that causes you, know, you to be able to tap into that flow state so much better? What is it exactly? Yeah, well, there's a lot of things that are happening during sleep. So a lot of people think of sleep as a passive state, but it's actually a very active state. So for example, memory consolidation is taking place. Um, There's activation in the amygdala in ways that that help us be less sensitive to stressors during the daytime the next day. Um, There's also a form of cleaning that happens in the brain. Um, as well during sleep and so in general it's yeah it's a very very active state we often think of it as a as a passive thing but it's an active thing one of the uh members of our advisory board of the flow research collective is a stanford neuroscientist called dr andrew huberman and he actually emphasizes the active nature of sleep so much that he actually recommends that people practice being asleep while awake through active relaxation techniques like yoga nidra which is definitely one to check out. You can look up Yoga Nidra on YouTube. It's just a, a, a very specific kind of guided relaxation technique um, that can really help sleep as well. So, Great, sleep. That's going to be my focus for tonight. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Rian. This was such a great conversation. I can't wait to share it with everybody. Um, and thank you for taking the time. Thank you. No, appreciate it, Roxana. Yeah, and, and thanks for the work you're doing as well. Of course.